2: Welcome to The Ruck, everybody. You'll have found that other podcasts just couldn't take the pressure. A lot of them have stopped. Maybe they ran out of inspiration or energy, and they're taking a break for the summer. The poor dears. The Ruck, as you've expected, will be blasting straight through lockdown with new guests, new ideas, one-on-ones, and the usual rabid panel discussions. We will not desert you. This week, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, there's more to chat about than in a normal weekend of live rugby, I'd say. It is all happening. Massive structured season meeting today. England clubs seem to be at war with each other and with the players through their union. And there was live rugby down in New Zealand with fascinating new laws or new law interpretation. So we will be coming to all that later. First of all, what about this panel? People used to say that Lawrence Delario used to referee games. As well as playing them, utter rubbish, when I was at games in which Lawrence was playing, he was the referee, both linesman, the TMO, and the sighting officer. Alex Lowe from The Times is the man who puts the thunder into Thunderer. His career in ballet unfortunately is on hold as he recovers from a broken ankle. Stuart Barnes is very excited today, something that Mrs. Leslie Barnes says. Happens only occasionally these days. But it is not long until a brand new Bob Dylan album comes out, Barnsley. The first one of new material for eight years. Will it be another blood on the tracks?
3: I've heard three tracks of it, Steve, and it's very promising. There's been nothing since Tempest in 2012. It's been a long eight years. Bob's timing is immaculate. He's a man with a sense of commercial imperative as well as Planetary Salvation. I shall be buying it with, well, I've already bought it. Can't wait.
2: I told you he was excited. Let's go straight to the live rugby, everybody. Highlanders Chiefs this week kicked off live rugby. As ever, we saw in the Forsyth Bar Stadium the height of Parisian catwalk chic fashion amongst the fans. Also, it was the Blues and Hurricanes. Lawrence, what did you make of it? There were new breakdown stresses or stresses on laws in the breakdown, a couple of other things which they threw in as well, such as the Golden Point, which we didn't need. What was your impression of it, Lawrence? And were you as relieved as anyone to see a live game?
1: First of all, I mean, I I have to say that, you know, we we all know that absence makes the heart grow fonder. And uh, clearly, we've all been without live sport and particularly live rugby for three months. So it was fascinating viewing, actually. Um, I've Got up uh, over the years on Saturday morning very early to listen to my, uh, my great friend Stuart Barnes and Miles Harrison talking about Super Rugby. What I've noticed over those years is that the fans and the crowds have been dwindling. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've been watching empty stadiums, even though the product sometimes good, sometimes very good, sometimes not so good at all. And I think the first thing to mention, the fact that there was, what, 43,000 people at Eden Park, the largest crowd in 15 years, shows that uh, suddenly New Zealand have fallen back in love with their greatest asset, the rugby union. And I think there were 60,000 fans across Auckland and Dunedin, which is an amazing effort, really. It just shows in times of isolation, you know, there's this kind of yearning to attend gatherings, to shout, to support, to just simply experience atmosphere. And uh, Mm -hmm. I I thoroughly enjoyed it. Going on to the games themselves, I mean, 61 penalties across two games. I mean, I suppose with these new law interpretations, particularly around the breakdown and the one that used to despair for all of us, the offside line, I suppose was inevitable, really. Some interesting stories and subplots on the Highlanders against the Chiefs, obviously for us over in this side of the world, watching Warren Gatland coaching the Chiefs, dropped by his own son, which uh, which I thought was uh, Bryn Gatland, who I used to run out with as a little mascot for games. So that makes me feel really old now. I did tweet something along the lines of Gatland dropped by Gatland. (laughs) <laughs> and Brian O'Driscoll was very quick to jump on it. He said, well, I know how he feels.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just for those uh, who didn't quite keep up to date in time for the match, the new breakdown laws, very, very briefly, first of all, the tackler is still the priority. still has to get away. That's what referee's looking for. He has to get, as they call, east or west. He has to roll towards the touch lines. He mustn't sort of roll back and get in the way of the scrum half. Also, the tackle player has now only one movement he's allowed to make, one dynamic movement. He can't roll and roll. He can't keep changing his body shape. It must be immediate, so he must now fall correctly. Also, um, people going past the ball and flopping, they're very hard on that too. Alec, what did it do for you?
4: I think the first thing I noticed were how few box kicks there were in the game, which was a blessed relief from watching those caterpillars being formed in, in, in the the rugby that we were watching before lockdown and I felt that that was a result of quicker ball at the breakdown those defences having to be that half a pace further back created more space and more opportunity allied with with sort of the natural ambition that you tend to see in super rugby and really high skill levels so there was there was a massive reduction in, in the number of box kicks to what we're used to certainly the breakdown there was just, There were turnovers galore on the floor, which I, I feel will kind of calm down a bit as as the players get used to the new laws. two thirds of those penalties Lawrence mentioned were at the breakdown, so the referees were were in, enforcing what they 've been asked to enforce the, the, the players seem to be trying to adapt, but it 'll take a few weeks Stuart,
2: you uh, addressed the, the the penalties this morning sixty one penalties in two games didn 't bother you because you think that That was just the the players adjusting, as Lawrence said, really. And uh, you were generally quite encouraged by uh, what you saw?
3: I think it's absolutely vital that the referees don't back down, and not just the referees, the officials. And remember, there's been a lot of fuss made about New Zealand uh, initiative. But World Rugby have said that from next season onwards, they will be insisting that referees do not interpret the breakdown, but they referee it according to the laws. And that isn't that far different from what we're seeing in New Zealand. And as the boys have said, we've got into into habits where players, especially in attack, they've got away with flopping over the ball a lot and it's stopped being a contest. Very interested to carry on with Alex or to dispute slightly. Said there's a lot of turnovers on the floor and that'll change. But I think because players are getting penalised for holding onto the ball, Steve, or rolling an extra millimetre to buy time so their mates can get there. They're getting isolated. And what I love about the breakdown, when it's really good, is every step a rugby player takes, there has to be a reason. In rugby league, you've got athletes who are fantastically quick and they've got great hands, but when there's any doubt, they just run into a tackle, put the ball through their legs and start again. So it's staccato. And Union has got like that because referees, thinking they're helping, have allowed attackers to flop over the top hmm. and they've allowed defenders to put their hands there, attack them about the weather for three seconds and then go away. So I, I think that it makes Union more like old Union but it will restore intelligence to the hub of the game.
1: Just to build on Barnsley's point there, the breakdown is absolutely the key and, and for a lot of people... It's felt like it's been a little bit like the Wild West over the last couple of years. You know, the referees, bless them, have got so much to focus on at the breakdown that they tend to look at the tackler and the tackle player and the ball. And there have been players on both sides, whether defending or, or attacking, just going, coming in at all sorts of angles, going off their feet, almost assaulting other players. And that is the bit that needs to be resolved. And what I was fascinated with over the weekend, and bear in mind we're only two games into this, by the way, with teams that, from New Zealand who really do like to to encourage and promote quick ball, is that uh, the referees were quite keen and quite quick to penalise not just the defending team at the breakdown, but actually the, the attacking team as well. Coaches will look at that and say, well, you know, you can't have it both ways. But the reality is you do have to have it both ways. And I think there's just be a balance to be struck because... To Alex's point, you know, it's wonderful to try and get rid of the unnecessary box kicking. But also, if teams are penalised for going off their feet in an attacking sense too much, then they'll lose the confidence to play in their own half.
2: One of the Super Rugby officials, and you alluded to this, said play will become faster and faster. Is that what we necessarily want?
1: Ideally, but, you know, the art of defending and should not be completely taken out of the game as well. And and defending is not just about tackles, it's about realignment. I mean, if the ball is so fast, you're going to get situations where defences can't realign in time and you sort of almost defeat the object of attack v defence, really. So uh, I think there's a balance to be struck. I, I was largely encouraged by what I saw at the weekend. But uh, what we have to understand is... Uh, is that there's a, a balance between attack and defence as well.
3: The other thing, Jonesy, you know, I agree with you, this thing about it'll just get faster and faster as if that's good. Actually, I read that comment, but I think the consequences are slightly different because you can't get away with flopping over the top. You'll get penalised in your own half. doesn't necessarily mean your box kick. The Highlanders and the Hurricanes, Saturday and Sunday, both those teams, what they did was slow quite a lot of line-out ball down in their own half, Jonesy, but they drove it. They stayed on their feet. And I think that is exactly what we want, this this balance between staying on your feet and driving, going to ground and moving quickly. Let me ask you something you also brought up this morning, Stuart, and that
2: was difference in attitudes between the relationship between the players and referees. You, you sort of said, really, that... In, it up here that there's a lot of talking, the ref is completely, you know, bleating, the players are bleating. But you were impressed by the way that the players
3: kept quiet and really got on with it? I think our referees have gone in completely the wrong direction. This palliness is just, it's awful. They think they're mates with the players and they're just being taken for fools because every time you get that three seconds, yeah. come on, roll away, roll away. They take three seconds and then we all know it sets a different. There's also the issue of almost sort of teacher's pets. You do get that. The big names get away with more than the other ones. You just referee laws. You don't referee interpretations to players. And I thought Paul Williams on Saturday in particular was outstanding. The breakdown is bloody difficult. I mean, I, I was trying to watch every breakdown and at about 45 minutes, I lost concentration because it was just mentally tiring. And I can wind back. Referees can't do that. So I do empathise with them. And I Mm. also think that there's a a certain degree, when the referees are saying, release, hold on, three seconds, don't do that. I think they're buying time for themselves as well. And that is not a massive criticism because if the breakdown is going to be as as, as competitive and fast as it is, isn't, and as it should be, but as it's not, and refs are going to be under great pressure. And I, for one, am going to try to look at their overall performance at the breakdown and not start saying he got that wrong.
2: Lawrence, there was another law which is in operation. This was, we should stress, it's not a universal law. It is just in Super Rugby. But you had to almost prove to the referee that you were onside rather than him trying to work out whether you're onside or offside. That made quite a difference. Did you like that rule? Would you like to see that? Carrying on because you did in your first comments today talk about the offside line and the lack of policing.
1: If you're offside individually, there's one thing, if you're offside collectively, it's a, it's a much more difficult thing to spot. For a long time, the game has set out to try and police the offside law, and I think in the big early games of the season, there's lots of penalties, and then as the you know, naturally, as the game cre- creeps on and the season creeps on, you know, the things that they generally Stamped down on early on in the season, tend to tend to drift a little bit. Sometimes offside, very close to the breakdown, the first two or three defenders is often maybe not picked up as quickly as as it as it possibly should be. So, look, I'm 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 in favour of it definitely, but I do like to see that there's a bit more consistency throughout the whole season. What I don't want to see is the son the standard set, and then suddenly, as we get to sort of a, a third or two thirds of the way through the season, that the the referees don't continue to police it. It's a bit like putting the ball in straight at the scrum. You know, you have these barrage of free kicks and awarded, and then suddenly, halfway through the season, it, everyone's forgotten about it again.
4: We've talked about, and Barnes just talked about there, how, how difficult it is to to referee the breakdown. So many things happening. And of course, now they've got new points to, to focus on, which perhaps they, they'd let go before. I think just the idea of having a team having to be clearly onside just allows the referee... I know you I know should have a lot of support from an assistant, but... It allows the referee, at a glance, to be comfortable that they are on side, rather than having to maybe take his eyes off the breakdown to study where the toe is of the guard and, and, and such. So I think I think just having them that, that bit further back makes an easier decision for the referee. He, he can spot it more quickly, focus back on, on the floor. And I'm sure we'll, we'll come to it in, in a weeks time. But uh, Super Rugby in Australia have a have a whole raft of, of additional laws which are which will be interesting. The 50-22 kicks coming in and goal line dropouts if you're held up over the line so there's a lot of innovation happening in southern hemisphere which is designed to to try and improve the game as a spectacle make it safer and sometimes that will mean making it making it quicker and if you listen to eddie jones his main argument is is that you need to create fatigue in matches because that creates space and opportunity he would cut the the replay number of replacements which i'm sure we've debated before if you have speed in the game you do create fatigue
2: Now we're going on to what could be called a civil war, gentlemen. Um, At the moment, uh, there's a big barney in English rugby. There was a 25% pay cut on a temporary basis, which the players accepted to help through the COVID-19 pandemic. Then suddenly that seemed to become a 25% permanent cut. The RPA Players Union were not fond of that in any way whatsoever. Very quickly, it became so fractious that Premiership Rugby, or at least some premiership clubs, uh, issued a statement breaking off negotiations entirely. And again, that seemed to be odd because Premiership Rugby didn't appear to know anything about that statement. Lawrence, you're seeing it from several points of view. What did you make of it? Because it does seem to be civil war and no one is talking to one another.
1: Yeah, it's not great, is it? When the rest of the uh, rugby world seems to be cooperating and collaborating more than they've ever done before because of the pandemic, English rugby looks to be uh, fighting and and carrying it all out very uh, unceremoniously. I have to say, I don't think we got off to the best possible start in the sense that... um, The clubs decided that they wanted to make some cuts. Everyone understands the pressure that every club is under. Revenues are drying up. No real sight of revenue coming in over the next few months, compounded by the losses that they've already made. But by not discussing any sort of plans or intentions with the Rugby Players Association, led by Damien Hopley, right from the outset of this pandemic, I don't think it's created the right sort of spirit of uh, of trust and understanding. And players were told that they would... um, be having a 25% pay cut without consultation. It's caused divisions within clubs. It's caused divisions within the RPA. It's caused breakdown of relationships. And now, when they're trying to add further changes to that, you know, clearly there's going to be uh, pulling up the drawbridge on both sides. So uh, I do think if it is going to move forward with, with sensible negotiation, they do need to... Um, to put the players' voice at the front of it, I noticed on the World Rugby meeting that's taking place today, and we'll obviously discuss that a little bit more in detail in terms of the structure of the season. The international rugby players have a presence in that meeting, and they're certainly their voice is heard. You know, it's not fair just to sort of march over the players and just assume mm. that you can um, that you can make these decisions without l- at least letting them have a fair negotiation at the table. Totally agree with that, uh, Alex.
2: Alex Lowe, you were involved in the in the story and trying to dig out who was talking to who and who, who wasn't. What did you make of it? And was it as murky as it sounds?
4: Uh, yes, I think so. All of last week, really. On, on Monday, the clubs voted to reduce the salary cap, but even that was were, was kind of wrought with loopholes because in order to get a, a unanimous decision on lowering it, lowering the base level from six point four million to five million for the 21-22 season, they've built in this caveat whereby clubs can be 25% over the cap in that one season. So immediately, clubs were trying to re-sign players on lower on new contracts under the threat that they'll either have their existing contract cut by 25%, or they might they can accept this new contract, which has probably had an extra year in security, but um, certainly one club was offering... Staggered, you know, a contract that contains staggered reductions, starting at fifteen percent, ending in twenty-five percent in three years' time. Um, these players have been put under immediate pressure to sign contracts by the eighteenth, which is Thursday. So they had basically a, you know, just over a week in which to, to to sign something for the next three or four years, or risk having their existing contracts slashed by twenty-five percent. And the, the the clubs have all the power here because they've already breached the players' contracts by imposing the temporary reduction but where are these players going to go there's only a handful who you know i guess the very top players would be snapped up there's a tranche in the middle who will really worry about their future and will feel maybe that the the security of a longer deal is more important than than having to fight for the you know fight to prevent the pay cut so the rpa are are having to battle on 13 different fronts because prl Refused to engage with them in a sort of collective bargaining sense. There is no collective bargaining agreement, but PRL and the Premiership clubs refused to engage the RPA centrally. So now you've got 13 clubs doing 13 slightly different things. The RPA have been increasingly frustrated with the lack of consultation and conversations going back three months, and eventually their frustration boiled over with a very, very strongly worded statement initially from Mark Lambert, the chairman. Harlequin's mm. Prop on Wednesday. That had been due out on Tuesday, but I think they were expecting Premiership Rugby to, to confirm the salary cap reductions that they'd voted for on Monday. That took them two days to do it. So eventually the RPA just lost their patience. Then Premiership Rugby said we will no longer engage with the union. And then the clubs, independently of their own sort of league organizers, put out a statement saying that they too would, would cease negotiations with the union and which suggested very strongly that that the club's acting independently of their own league. Uh, there's a fallout there, and, and there's certainly a lot of rumours that the club owners and executives are losing faith in the league. It's a total mess. They're, the club seems to be falling out with the league. They've fallen out with the players, and now they're all sitting around the table today, as you, as you mentioned earlier, trying to thrash out a global calendar in which the players do have a big say. So, uh, Sorry if I've just gone all around the houses, but that's basically what's happening. Everyone is fighting everyone, and, and 25 years into professional rugby, Everyone's still fighting.
2: um, uh, There's there's probably no innocent bystanders, but Premier Rugby limited the the club's body, hardly covering themselves in glory. Do you think their existence or their raison d'etre is now in doubt?
3: Yes. I think, uh, above all, we've got to bring this back to basics. The man management is desperate. PRL have to be working with the clubs better. There, there, There is no management coming from them, and that is one of the things they are supposed to be doing is managing situations they're not doing it the clubs have to get through to their players that the world has changed and whilst I understand that the RPA and individual players will be furious with the lack of transparency it doesn't take a very clever person to know that frankly no matter what the vicissitudes and what's going on this world has changed and the players are going to have to take substantial pay cuts. They have been on far too much money in terms of what clubs are turning over. Clubs are making losses all, all over the place. It actually, you sense that there had to be a change and this might be the moment. And I feel for the players, but just because the, the way it is happening is awful doesn't mean it doesn't have to happen. Lawrence.
1: Yeah, well I think the you know, the Lord Miners report, which both Alex and Stuart reported on quite closely, which was the report into the salary cap, was suggesting that around something up to about a hundred players in the premiership were earning more than three hundred thousand pounds a year. That's roughly eight players per club that are just earning ludicrous amounts of money. Five years ago, that number was nowhere near a hundred players, it was around about five players. So To Stuart's point, the the inflationary wages within the Premiership has caused such a problem that uh, everyone is now being asked to take these pay cuts on the back of bad man management of the players. If you're telling me that over 50 players in the Premiership are earning in excess of £400,000 and somewhere like 25 players in the Premiership are earning in excess of £500,000 and a handful of them are earning in excess of six hundred, I mean, it's... Completely and utterly bonkers. And then all of those players are then earning, additionally, the international ones, the really lucky ones, are getting another twenty-five thousand pounds a game and potentially playing eight to ten test matches a season. I mean, you know, the world has gone utterly mad. That is not uh, an old has been resenting people being paid. I, I couldn't couldn't agree more that players should get well paid, but not players who are. Who is stealing a living, they should not be getting well paid to that tune. And that's where the premiership needs to resolve itself. Get a sensible wage structure that everyone adheres to and understands. And at the moment, it's just completely out of control.
2: Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Hopefully, we might find some better news. Today, as we speak, there's a very big meeting, or online meeting, of the top 10 unions in the world, together with the international players, and the two, uh, or possibly three, organizing committees of the of the major leagues, actually make that four with Europe. First of all, I was lucky enough to get all the details and documentation for the meeting last week, and what do we think, chaps, of the idea that, uh, which seems to be really a real runner now, that... Uh, Six Nations and and Rugby Championship will be played at the same time and uh, that the International Series, as they now call it, will be played in our autumn, both in the Northern and Southern Hemisphere.
3: Stuart, do you fancy that? No, I don't. I think it's a pipe dream. I think rugby has a couple of fantasies. One is this thing about getting hold of the American market. The other is this global season... I don't fancy it. What I fancy are a few less club games. I think my old mate Simon Halliday talking about this World Club final is absolute posturous nonsense. Nobody cares about rugby league's version. No one cares about football. There's no room for rugby union. We need a little less rugby played. We need a little more higher standard. If you take a few games away, there is no problem with the location, the timing of the Six Nations. There's no problem. With Super Rugby, Premiership, there's no problem with the Rugby Championship and the Autumn Internationals. You can have that league. You can have that. You do not need this carefully choreographed to within three seconds of Rugby Union's existent plan for the global game. When was the last time they
2: ever removed a game from the fixture list?
3: When was the last time they
2: took one away?
3: I know, but they're going to have to. I think super rugby, with the fact that it's just flabby and all over the shop, the fact that people are saying you can't keep flying all around the world playing rugby, we've got a climate crisis, I think that's an issue. And I think the other issue is now, in this country, our clubs are so... Str- we've just been talking about players having to take pay cuts. We've been talking about the pressure on clubs. You need a little bit less, not a lot more. That is the way that we will see our way through here, by thinning out a bit, not getting flabbier and over-inflated. Lawrence,
2: uh, we, we are going to have, surely, we're going to have this international series. We're going to have everything at the same length as it as it is now, that, that, because that is what they're aiming for.
1: Well, just, just to be clear, I mean, I, as I understand it, the, the, there's kind of three outcomes that they're trying to discuss at the heart of, of the World Rugby Meeting today. One is is obviously to, and I hate using the word align, but it is the only word, align the domestic seasons for the Northern and Southern Hemispheres, which are currently played at different, different times. Now, if you're trying to align the laws of Rugby Union, and we've just seen the way that they're enforcing them in the um, first two games of, of New Zealand Super Rugby, then there is some sense in trying to align the seasons because you know you're comparing like with like in terms of the way the game is refereed because currently certain laws of rugby union when you try and Im- impose them in the in the deep dark months of winter in the UK and Europe uh, it's a very different interpretation to the uh, the harder summer months of uh, of the rest of the world the other thing they're trying to uh, discuss and get on the table. Currently, we all know we have three international windows and they want to reduce those three into two. So instead of having Six Nations, Summer Tours, Autumn Internationals, they've got to try and overlap those and bring them down to two. And then the final one would be to concoct something, I guess, in October and November that that looks like a Nations Cup that maybe allows you to introduce the likes of Japan and some of these other countries into the international top-tier fixtures. So in many ways, the concepts of what they're trying to discuss, I'm totally behind those. Obviously, we are all opposed to a bit of change. It would mean the Six Nations shifting out of its traditional window and going uh, head-to-head with various other sports. But if you look at the reasons why they're trying to do these things, I'm kind of quite supportive of it, really. Stuart's talked about less is more and I think we're all in agreement with that, what they desperately need to do is reduce the overlap that currently exists between domestic and international rugby. And that does mean someone has got to uh, give a little bit here. So there's going to have to be a reduction of the number of fixtures, the quantity. So if these conversations end up having fewer, better quality matches, player welfare, which I think is really important part of it, is very much at the heart of how many fixtures are being played. I'm not resistant as some to seeing only two international windows across the year and maybe the domestic hemispheres, you know, their seasons being a little bit better aligned. Whether you'll get complete alignment is another matter, but certainly better aligned in order to create better player welfare, yeah. fewer, better quality games. I guess the big problem is going to be our good old friends, the English clubs and the French clubs, because I cannot see them agreeing to what is being effectively pushed through by World Rugby.
2: Alex, uh, do you fancy the international series? You'll be uh, seeing not much of your family because when you do three games in the autumn, you'll then get on board an aircraft and do three in the Southern Hemisphere.
4: I'm not convinced of the need to have two windows brought together into one. and there's, That might be because I have questions about it which as yet remain unanswered. For example, how do the Lions fit into that window? If, if the Lions are going to use an October-November window, then are we saying that the home nations will then not have any test matches in, in those windows? And so, I mean, it probably won't apply 21 but next year, but let's say Lions Tour 2025. If that takes place in October and November in the international window, are we saying that England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland don't have any te- home test matches that year? In which case, where's that money going to come from? Or do they have test matches, but... At the same time as the Lions tour I don't quite understand how that's going to work I'm not convinced yet you need to join them together for the narrative although that they believe that you do they believe that you need to have October November as one and I guess you'd go you'd go south for the first month and come back north for the, for the second or, or the other way around I think we're just just on the English clubs there I spoke to them yesterday to try and gain an insight into what position they were taking going into today's meeting PRL said that they don't yet have a position on it. My assumption was they'd automatically back the French clubs, which I'm pretty sure they probably will in the end. But their position was, we don't have a position, which seems pretty strange to me going into Absolutely ludicrous. going into an enormous meeting where these proposals are going to be laid out. All the unions are behind the shift in the calendar. They want rugby to be a calendar year season. I'm completely of the, uh, in the agreement with... With the others, that you have to lose matches, you have to lose club matches to to avoid clashes and and, and also, share and
1: share money too, and that's the that's the nub of it. I mean, it, it, you well, can that, lose matches; just, but you, you've got to pull the money together and share it, and, and that hasn't happened for for many many years. And it's a question I, of whether the unions will be prepared to to pull their revenue together and share it
4: completely. And that brings me to my my last point on it, which is the, uh, the one thing I was told yesterday was if this is going to work, if the October November window is going to work then nations will, ha- will, will no longer be able to arrange test matches outside of international windows. So yeah. this autumn, for example, England is due to play four test matches. The fourth of them against Australia is outside of the international window. So England will be paying Australia an appearance fee and actually forms part of their deal with the clubs, which half, half of the revenues from that game get paid to the clubs and it's part of the, the um, club country deal. If this new structure is going to work, then Wales, who rely on that fourth test match every year, England, who have two in every four year cycle, cannot be arranging test matches outside of international windows because the system won't work. So they would, they would have to, to sacrifice those games.
2: I'm sorry, I'm very, very sure about this in my own head. There are the same number of club games, basically, that there always were. Why is it always the clubs have to sacrifice? Why is it always the unions who play this card about all oh, this stopping their international careers? I can tell everyone that French clubs will not be participating in any summer series whatsoever, nor will Simon Halliday and EPRC. Not because it's totally in the summer, but uh, from ERC, do not want the games to be in the summer because they think having a whole unbroken block of professional club rugby games for about 12 or 14 weeks just becomes boring. It'll be minced in terms of appeal. As one of the club owners said to me on Saturday, do you think that England's Test cricket and Ascot and, the, and the, the, the boat race and the golf majors are going to be bothered about club rugby coming in to the middle of the summer? Of course not. Paul goes told me categorically, They cannot do it. It is ruinous. He said there is no business done in France between Bastille Day on July the 14th and August the 23rd, which is when they want to play. It does not happen. And again, this summer plan was given to them. They weren't asked about it. They weren't at the top table. They were kicked out of the normal season without them knowing. And they only found out about it last week. So that is what you're up against with the vipers mm. in international rugby, and but, also I found totally this great new bon on me and all that is a fallacy. It doesn't exist.
4: It it doesn't exist, Steve. You're right. And. Um, and again, in terms of, you know, communication and consultation in rugby, there's no sense, even 25 years into professionalism, of different parties working together. You know, it's, we've seen it in the premiership. We've seen it with the creation of this calendar proposal, that, the, you know, the six bodies on the working group, there's no representation from the English clubs because Bill Sweeney is their representative as the RFU boss and the French clubs are represented by Bernard Laporte, who's on it from a World rugby perspective. You can't wear two hats in these... Negotiations, as we saw in San Francisco, where you had all the lions board there when they came up with the last sort of global season structure, and not one of them uh, voiced the lions argument in it. My only point, Steve, I was just making about club games being cut, and it 's really specifically to england i 'm not saying you cut Premiership matches, but there are a lot of you know the Premiership cup and, and other other weekends that get used up by matches which which i don 't think are necessary, and inevitably, if this is ever going to work, there 's got to be a compromise and Someone did say to me that ultimately. If Paul goes, gets his World Club Championship, he'd stomach the rest. Now, I don't know how, I mean, you you say you've spoken to him, I don't know whether how much of what he says is posturing and how much of it is, he's absolutely... I I got the impression none
2: of it was posturing because deep down he was still quite conciliatory. He just wants the World Club Championship once every four years and all it would be was that you take away the quarter finalists from the Heineken Cup to play in it. But i just carry on. Just want one more point now. And it's, it's a slightly bittersweet point, And that is, last week, Ashley Johnson was announced as, as leaving Wasps. And I just thought, what a great man he's been. A great interviewee. Lovely lad. People talk about foreign players sometimes as if there's some sort of poisonous influence. But, Lawrence, you've had some great ones there. Ashley Johnson, Jimmy Godworth. Just briefly, what would you say about Ashley Johnson and the general benefits of, of having a play like that at a club?
1: First of all, the thought of, uh, you know, the, the foreign imports, the, the you know, the, the overseas signings, if you like, are, uh, I think if, if, if they're identified correctly, if it's the right fit between player and club, I think they're a wonderful signing and wonderful addition, you know, in terms of what they do for the game, in terms of for the fans, for the existing workforce within there, you, you really get a sense of something very special. And you can see clubs that have done them, have done it very, very well. Ashley Johnson, from a WASP perspective, is right up there along the, the, the likes of Craig Dowd and, and Rob Howley, Jimmy Godpourth, you mentioned as well. There's There's been, there's been quite a few. When it's supplemented by a wonderful academy programme and and, and a, a, a healthy mix of international domestic players as well, I think it's um, it's really good. Stuart, uh, your local club, Francois Lowe, would be somewhere
3: up there in that context as well. Lowe, as you say, has been fantastic for Bath. just... Literally, as Lawrence was speaking there, Steve, I've not prepared this, but off the top of the head, I just thought, right, okay, a couple of back rowers. And I think back to Harlequins, who had this reputation for fancy players, but being a bit soft. Think back to David Wilson, came from Australia. No one talks about Wilson. The open yeah. side gave him real glue. i go back to before the dawn of professional rugby, Wayne Shelford. Wayne
2: Shelford,
3: yeah. Wayne Shelford at Northampton, we used to... Sunday England training sessions, week before internationals, used to get the likes of Matt Dawson and, and Tim Rodborough along. And, and the rest of us used to laugh because they prefixed every statement, every sentence with Buck says. And that is not taking the in because Shelford was yeah, such yeah, yeah. a big man there. And, and then I'll give you one more guy, what he's done for the game. Think about the contribution of Pat Lamb as a player at Newcastle, as a player at Northampton as a coach at Bristol I mean has anyone done more as a premiership personality than Lamb very few
2: Alex uh, favourite overseas player
4: Sharp Brits, was my favourite probably done it at Saracens or did at Saracens similar to what Lawrence described of Ashley Johnson just incredible character uh, lovely bloke and then just a, a hell of a player
2: we should mention now uh, repeat that the ruck is going straight through to uh, live rugby in Europe we'll be coming to you every week. Just a reminder or an alert that in two weeks' time we'll be coming to you from the virtual rugby show. Uh, you really should look that up online, it's called an unbelievable guest list uh, in aid of our favorite charity, Lawrence's Rugby Works, and the work that they do is absolutely unbelievable. So thanks, Lawrence, thanks, Arthur, thanks, Stuart, for, for today. Thank you for listening, and as we said at the start, We won't be leaving you anytime soon.